0: Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the Occupier's Champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to Cresa.com slash Portland to connect with the Portland Advisory Team. From That Cast Creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey everyone, Uh, thanks for listening to PDX Executive Podcast. We're back with a new episode and, and this is season five. I started this in 2017. And one of my favorite things to do is learn about new companies, not just in Portland, but in Oregon. Central Oregon specifically, so I'm very excited to have Josh Crossman, who's the CEO and founder of Magnify.io. Welcome, Josh.
1: Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Excited to be on the podcast with you.
0: I think a good place to start, and we, we were chatting before we were recording, is to get right into it. So we're going to, not to put you on the spot, but give the pitch. You know, What is Magnify.io?
1: Yeah, Magnify is a post-sales orchestration platform, and what that means is it takes all of the disparate disconnected sets of experiences that customers have when they purchase enterprise software and stitches them together using software, using code in a way that makes it easy for customers and for end users to adopt software. It makes it easy to orchestrate them, and it also makes it easy to scale software adoption. And In a modern uh, software environment where everything is about product-led growth, it's about driving adoption and expansion and 90% of the value in software is created after the initial sale, it's never been more important to find scalable solutions to have users have a great experience to adopt that software and ultimately to renew and expand with you.
0: So I think, you know, you, you saying that, we we probably know that you've been in this industry for a while. So let's yes. let's talk about kind of your, your background <laughs> and leading up to discovering the problem because I, I think we can back out and talk about customer success a little bit yes. in this. This function that's been around for a while, but I would say in the past you know, three, four years, it's just become critical for, for SaaS companies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let me maybe take a step back and tell a little bit about my story with customer success and maybe connect a couple dots from different experiences on why that matters to Magnify. Great. So we, uh, uh, I'd been an executive at a company that we'd taken public, uh, GM and a vice president running one of the business units We had sales and product and engineering and support and all that together. And done very well and and had sort of a great experience. And a very interesting company that called me up called Bright Edge, which was in the marketing SaaS space. So helping companies basically do well and perform well on, on Google's organic search, this sort of okay. natural search. So they called me up and said, Hey, we, you know, we know you've used this product. Could you come and be one of our executives and help build this company? At the time it was single digit millions. And I said, sure. And they said, well, we want you to do this thing. One of the things, give you a, a bunch of different responsibilities, but one of the things we want you to help oversee is build out a customer success organization. And I said, customer success, what is that? And this is back <laughs> in like 2010. And really, customer success has started off with this company called Salesforce. And uh, Salesforce, you know, as we all know, is this, this you know, massive success now. Um, But they had understood that the adoption, particularly in a subscription model, the adoption of software is everything because Mm -hmm. if you get your customers to have a delightful experience to use it, um, ultimately, they're going to renew because every year you're having to, to fight for that renewal. And the best way to do that is to invest in the success of the customers. And so there's a bunch of things you do in product, but importantly, there's a bunch of things you do with human beings. Mm-hmm. And so human beings, they call them customer success managers or customer success professionals. And what these human beings do is they go and they call up the customer and they visit on site and do webinars and Zooms and emails and phone calls and all the stuff that you would expect and help train the customers to use a piece of software technology and, and have success with it. And they're not a, usually a salesperson. They're a professional whose goal and compensation is centered around making sure that someone gets value out of a piece of technology. And so we built that at BrightEdge and then later had helped another company and it was an advisory board for a couple other um, software companies that were trying to figure all this out. And I think over the last decade or so, there's been 25 heads of customer success uh, at other companies that have come out of my reporting lines. And so we've had a pretty good track record of building out this customer success function, which I would say by and large is a manual human to human set of interactions.
0: Yeah, and I think that's uh, a key is just hearing you and it's super manual. So this obviously magnifies the, the pain point of automating that, right? So, yeah, exactly. but it's not replacing these folks. I mean, that's important. It's like, there's just this gap, right? Of uh, maybe it's based on size of the SaaS company or where do you kind of break that down? Where, where yeah, no it fits it's in. It's a
1: great question. Well, let's think about it. You and I are having this great conversation today and we're enjoying our interaction. And that's kind of what happens with the customer success manager or customer success professional. They're Having a conversation, maybe it's a webinar, maybe it's a Zoom, you know, maybe it's an in-person meeting. And this is kind of the nature of the interaction. We're gonna talk, yeah. we're gonna train you, we're gonna do all this great stuff. But if you think about that, that's just one person with another human being. Maybe there's a couple others on the call, maybe it's a group, who knows? But you know, it's a very limited set of people. The challenge is that in any enterprise or any company that's using a piece of software, they may be dozens, hundreds, even thousands of users that right. are not being touched by that customer success professional. And the way that that's historically addressed is maybe we send them an email, or maybe there's some webinar, or you know, frankly, we're going to rely on the customer themselves to train and use other people. And maybe mm-hmm. the product does something too. But it, it, you know, frankly, we're sort of doing this very kind of one-on-one set of interactions when in reality, we need to scale that experience across dozens, hundreds, thousands of other human beings. And of course, the way we solve this in so many other places is with technology, with software. Whenever there's a scale problem and whenever there's a complexity problem, we say, well, how can we use software to help help automate that and help scale that? And that's what Magnify is about. It's about bringing that type of customer experience that you and I would have if we're talking to a human being and figure out, well, how do we use software to help replicate that? And of course, you're exactly right. It doesn't replace right. the interactions that a customer success professional would have. If anything, it takes away a lot of the the sort of firefighting and low-level work that we just have to repeat and repeat and instead allows them to focus on the most strategic and important things.
0: Yeah. And it almost sounds like it's a, you're helping kind of the, the function, a maturity of the function. Obviously, that's you have right. a solution and things, but I, I think you, you, said, you said way back in 2010, okay, that's only <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like three lifetimes ago, but in reality, it was like 10, what? You know, 10, 11 years ago. So the function and kind of the, I wouldn't call it customer success industry, even though there kind of is with conferences Mm -hmm. and things is still pretty early. So that's super exciting. Now I want to step back just like the founding of the company, because uh, for what I understand, it was kind of incubated in partnership with Madrona Ventures. Is that right? So can you talk about that model and how, how that worked? Yeah. You
1: know, it's, it's a very fascinating model. One that I was less familiar with, frankly, coming into this, um, and it's one that I think more and more venture capital firms are beginning to explore and unpack. I mean, I think we're familiar with sort of incubators like Y Combinator and others, Echoing mm-hmm. Green in the nonprofit space and things like that, where they, you know, sort of bring in young folks, um, you know, living on ramen and and you know, a dream, and yeah. they're gonna go, we're gonna give them some basic business training. But for someone who's got more industry experience, this never made sense. You know, but what's interesting is that, at least in the case of Madrona Venture Group, so Madrona Venture Group, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's uh, a leading venture capital firm based in Seattle, Washington. They have incubate, or excuse me, they have funded uh, you know, some of the most amazing tech companies in the world, including, of course, most famously, Amazon, uh, UiPath, uh, Rover, Smartsheet. I mean, just an amazing set of, of companies um, and really been sort of a major player in the Seattle tech ecosystem for, for decades. Um, What's fascinating about about this is that, like with any good venture capital firm, they've got their own uh, thesis on the market and they have ideas and concepts. And one of their challenges has been, gosh, we see these incredible opportunities and in particular uh, around the intersection of AI and industry verticals. And we want to fund companies in those spaces and they could not always find them. And so what, what they created was a spin out called Madrona Venture Labs. And what Madrona Venture Labs does is actually take uh, this concept and they'll do a lot of the bootstrapping that a founder would normally do. They'll go and talk to initial sets of customers, they'll do some early pilots, they'll get engineers and product leaders involved and really bootstrap that for anywhere from six to 12 to 18 months. Okay. And Once they feel like the idea is mature, then they're going to bring in a seasoned executive, someone who's got industry experience, who's got a relevant set of ideas. And experiences and connections, and then try and match that together, and ultimately marry the two together. And that's what happened in my experience. So I've got a long, uh, you know, sort of set of experiences in sort of the post-sales right. industry. They had this thesis around automation and AI, ML in post-sales, and they said, "Gosh, what could we do?" And um, frankly, I had no interest in uh, at the time in going into sort of a zero-revenue company. <laughs> you know, i had done, you know, so sort of this is my fifth, I think, startup, okay. and I was kind of like, "Well, you know," I'm. Got kids, are getting a little older. You know, I'll go to a little later stage company, and uh, so compelled by this idea, such a big opportunity, and they had done so much of the the initial work to kind of get the concept started. It just made absolute sense and thrilled to be here.
0: Now, I love that model. I think it's called maybe the terms thrown our startup studio is yeah. That, I think one of the yeah kind of terms that have kind of come out of this model and, and what it is, and you start to see that more. And I think it's it makes a lot of a sense. I think. You know you look five six years ago probably people would have said this is not a good idea <laughs> but right <laughs> right now it's um obviously with the, the the talent wars and everything and just the the track record of someone like madrona that makes a lot of sense so that's that's pretty exciting so when you came on board and it had been kind of developed a little bit and were you in seattle or were, were, i want to get into no bend. i was i were... was
1: based in bend oregon so tell a little yeah, bit of my yeah. history and just to kind of connect a few more dots so I had uh, graduated from Duke University. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force. We bounced around all over. So I'm from everywhere and know where it feels like. Uh, but I uh, graduated from Duke University many, many years ago and then later had gone to a startup. And that was my sort of first taste of tech um, right out of school. And it was exciting and loved it. Um, but it was very clear at the time I, I needed to learn more about business. You know, As a, as a 22, 23-year-old, you know, we got acquired. It was a great experience I mm. Was one of the leaders there had a lot of fun, uh, but, but wanted to learn. So I ended up going to McKinsey & Company, a management consulting firm. Um, it was just an amazing set of experiences. I spent far longer than I ever expected I would, nearly a decade with McKinsey. Oh, wow. was in Korea for a couple of years, spent time in Indonesia and in you know, other places in Asia, and then spent quite a bit of time in Seattle, Washington, um, which was sort of the home for us. My wife was from Grants Pass, Oregon. From
0: I am Oregon. from Grants Pass.
1: Oh, really? Okay, yes. now we're going to go know, I'm not sure we, how deep down the rabbit hole we want to go, but- Well, we, I don't know. Uh, we
0: might have to take it offline, but I am a big, obviously, my folks still live down there, and yeah. I'm bullish on Southern Oregon for just companies and startups in general. But You know,
1: there's been some great stories uh, coming out of the Rogue Valley, out of the Medford area, and Grants Pass and things. I mean, just some really, not really fantastic. Yet, my, my in-laws still live there. We're down there regularly. And so- uh, we, were in, we were in Seattle, uh, you know, because that was sort of the biggest city that had a McKinsey presence close to Grant's right. path. And then eventually, as I left, uh, left McKinsey, went to a company we took public, then Bright Edge. And then I joined a company called Chef and sort of, again, helped to do post-sales operations, running a, a chunk of the company there. And what was fascinating about Chef was it was remote first culture well before COVID. It had been yeah. uh, come out of the DevOps space, so for those in the Portland area, it would have been you know, a competitor to puppet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Docker was also in there uh, that mix and all that. And so Chef uh, was a remote first culture and my wife and i said hey you know at this point the kids are getting a little older where do we want to go and and we'd been in bend uh, many times I actually had customers when i was with bright edge down in bend and fell in love okay. with the place i'm a whitewater kayaker and i said i got to get back to the river this is fantastic down here and uh, we moved to bend about 3 4 years ago and was with chef and uh, and absolutely sort of fallen in love with the place you know primarily for personal reasons Um, but having understood all that now, of course, bend is, is become sort of a a hotbed for remote work. And I'm sure we'll unpack that later.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, Josh, you're telling your story of moving to bend and that is like a textbook bend story, (laughs) (laughs) right? It's (laughs) like, (laughs) um, it's, it really has become the hotbed and it, you know, for several reasons, I know because of COVID, the startup quote unquote scene might be a little disconnected in every town right not Mm -hmm. just a smaller market like ben but even here and it's coming back and i know they just had the ben venture conference a couple weeks ago so it it seems like a just an amazing place to to be and there are some folks there that have exited some very very large companies that are just walking around you know they they chose to live there right so Mm -hmm. um, i'm excited about to see where where ben goes just to step back again to the startup studio because i think it's interesting you know you've had such a uh, a great career and for folks that are maybe a little more seasoned in their careers like you have been that want to get into startups or mm-hmm. come back to startups that kind of model of the the startup studio seems pretty interesting so how do folks kind of get on the bench for those kind of vc firms if they've been a seasoned executive to maybe to help or be tapped on the shoulder for that, or is it kind of a, a pretty close knit thing still?
1: No, no. Well, look, I mean, there's always a war for talent. I mean, they're all, yeah. you know, everybody from the largest companies to the smallest companies, um, wants to hire great people and wants those great people to be part of the team and to help build mm-hmm. a great company. So that's, so I, you know, there's no like, Oh, there's a state secret, you know, on a short list of five people in the world that can do a yeah. venture. Um, it's usually a, a, a little bit more, um, Fortuitous. I mean, I think my observation is that with all of these things, it's around a a combination of a couple different factors. I think one is being present. Uh, You know, Mm. I've known the Madrona folks for a better part of a decade, and we've tried to find different places to connect, and it's just never been the right fit at the right time in the right opportunity. But in this case, it it was. And so, you know, keeping the relationships up and getting to know them. I think it's also finding that intersection of where someone has a passion. And a set of experiences and a market need, and I think that what doesn't work is someone says, "Well, I just want to do any startup," and uh, particularly if they're coming in as sort of a founder or sort of one of the, the you know initial few executives, you know, and I just want to go make a lot of money and have a big equity share, and I'm going to go do this thing. It's like, no, you actually have to have passion and conviction about the industry and about the market and the opportunity, which you know I certainly do because of my experiences in post sales and having lived that life. Um, right. And I can say that, you know, for any other great founder, that's, that's really important to find an intersection of passion and market need. And then of course the timing with, um uh, with the great venture.
0: Yeah. So I think it, you know, it's public that you've raised initial round, I think it's around yeah. 6, six million. 6 million. Um, so, you know, I know you have some roles on your website, your hirings, mm-hmm. so, you know, you, folks here 6 million and it's like, oh, that's, that's amazing. But again, going back to the talent piece, that's, you're still competing with talent for all these other great companies. Yeah. And so I'm assuming a lot of these roles can be remote, right? So how are you kind of thinking through that as, as the the founder? And
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, I, a couple observations. So maybe you didn't ask the question, but I'm going to give you an answer anyway, yeah. uh, which is a little bit of kind of 6 million is a seed round, um, yeah. which is kind of, you know, when I, back in the old days, you know, of five years ago, a 6 yeah. million would have been like a series A, you know, would have been sort of an early uh, you know, kind of like yeah, it's a little smallish on the Series A, but a Series A type round, you know, and a seed is like you know a million or two million. And what's interesting is just as people have understood what's going on in the market and how important software has become, you're sort of seeing this, this sort of compression or inflation of of rounds sort of down the mm-hmm. down the spectrum. So certainly six million, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting and exciting for us, but that also means that we've got a lot of work to do to grow into and. In order to do that work, to your point, Dan, you know, you got to go and hire great talent. And, you know, our observation, or at least my observation from from, from the experience at Chef is that great talent can be anywhere. Uh, they can be in Bend, Oregon, they could be mm-hmm. in uh, you know, Paducah, Kentucky, and they could be in New York City. Uh, and the question is, how do we unlock that talent and how do we get them to, to be part of a team and to collaborate and be productive? And Chef, because of that remote uh, first experience, has learned a lot of lessons around how to do that. And so that's absolutely right. We're going to hire and recruit and uh, build everywhere. We're going to have a presence in Seattle. We'll have a presence down here in Bend. Um, but we fully expect the team could be located anywhere uh, in the U.S. or potentially even abroad.
0: And what are some of those lessons you, you mentioned? Because, I mean, obviously, it, it was pre-COVID. And so yeah. you won't say you're ahead of the <laughs> this this work revolution. But, uh, yeah, what are some things you can share with folks about that? That.
1: You know, I'd say a couple of things. I think one is that if you're going to have it be remote, make it remote, like actually put the virtual first. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll never forget the first time I walked into Chef and we're, you know, the CEO is about to introduce me to the rest of the company. And I'm expecting this all hands meeting and we're going to go sit in this, you know, big space in the office and I'm going to go do a talk and stuff. And instead we go into this little conference room and it's the CEO and me. And, and so Barry uh, is the name. And so Barry and I are talking and he's like, okay, let's get started. And I'm like, huh? And then everybody across <laughs> the entire corporate headquarters, you know, all you know, hundreds of them, like, open their laptops, uh, and I'm doing this talk in this little conference room for people who are literally five feet away from me, you know, outside in another desk. Um, because if you're going to put remote first, you have to, because it just is a bad experience. Mm. Um, so that's one. I think the second thing, though, is that remote isn't perfect, and I think we've all realized that standing in front of Zoom screens. Uh, And so what what you save in maybe office or real estate expenses or things like that has to be reinvested, not entirely, but certainly a decent chunk of it uh, back into travel. And Mm. so, for instance, one of the things that we're going to be doing is to have regular in-person gatherings, whether that's in Seattle or Bend or wherever it might be, because that's the way that you build trust and relationship. And without that trust and relationship, you're not going to have a high performing team. And you can't do that. You just there's only so much trust building that can happen over uh, a monitor and, and right. uh, zeros and ones in a pipe. There's something about the physical presence and human beings having relationships and seeing each other that matters, and, and uh, that's certainly an important thing as well.
0: Super important. I love how you know you say you're reinvesting it into these experiences and these these gatherings, and I think a lot of companies are you know have never had that kind of culture, worked a place like that, or. <laughs> figuring that out, right? And so, yeah. uh, uh, really, really valuable uh, um, advice. Well, as a couple of things as we go, you know, Joshua in the conversation, uh, I do want to get into a little bit of bend, and and, mm-hmm. and I think you said you've been there a few years, and mm-hmm. you know, obviously, two almost two of those years have been through COVID. I mean, it's a great place to live. We all know that, especially if you love the outdoors. But as far as you know, connecting with other founders or just working there. What are some of the, the great things about being there and maybe some, some cons because it is still a pretty small place. Yeah,
1: Well, you know, I, I'd say maybe broadly on kind of the startup ecosystem in bend, um, you know, historically bend has been traditionally, I think sort of a relatively small set of industries. It's been sort of healthcare, we've had Les Schwab here yeah. and tourism, right? Those are kind mm-hmm. of been the things Ben's known for. And then of course, later breweries, uh, you know, and so a lot of great beer here. But there have been a, gr- a number of great startups that have come out. So G5 is probably one of the better known ones um, in sort of a uh, you know, few kinds of real estate and, and care spaces, uh, multifamily units like G5. And I think a few others, while they've met with, you know, it's been great successes and, and you know, fantastic work by all of them. Uh, you know, they've they've had exits um, and sort right. of relatively, you know, not kind of been like, you know, the the you know, going public sorts of stories that we all love to read about in the news. And so you know, G five was one of the leading ones. had a great a great outcome for them, but they've been through a couple of hands of private equity in the last few years. You had Audet Media, which was acquired and then acquired again. Uh, um, you had Mazama, uh, which was in the legal space that was acquired. Mm-hmm. You had Ten Barrel, of course, which is acquired by, by Inbev. Um, yeah. You know, and so you got kind of this great great story. You know, even like smaller ones like uh, Picky, which was a sort of a bar company, was acquired by Laird Superfoods, which which I think mm-hmm. is one of the great success stories out of Sisters, which has gone yeah. public. You know, Metolius has been here. So there's been a bunch of companies in Bend, but, you know, I don't think sort of software and kind of scaling has always been there. There was Collective that did some interesting things and moved up from the Bay Area. Um, you know, Aviation had done some things with Epic and then um, Volsani and some mm-hmm. few others. But, you know, I think it's still early days. I think what you're seeing right now is, you know, a startup ecosystem really grows when you have an intersection of talent and capital. And as sort of a physical geography, I think that's what we've learned from places like Seattle and the Bay Area. And I think there's certainly capital that's been coming in. Um, there's some great venture funds like Seven Peaks. Um, and I think sort of other locations have sort of, re- you know, realized Ben's a place to invest. And then places like the Ben Venture Conference have right. been doing a good work to try and sort of connect those. But I still think there's a lot of folks who've come in who've been staring at their Zoom screens for the last few years. And uh, I think there's still more work to do. It's early innings for building a a, a tight knit ecosystem in Bend.
0: Well, I mean Zoomtown USA Bend, right? Yeah. So that's what they're calling it. <laughs> right. I, had so- I had someone who was just a friend who was there last week, just you know, visiting, and they're like, "Ah, oh, the traffic is getting pretty bad." I'm like, "Come on, <laughs> well, <laughs> compared well, to it, what?" <laughs> it's,
1: it's I will say this. I will say this. So we, you know, we used to joke about that, but I think you know, having been here now three or four years. I think it's, it's a percentage problem. So if it's 50, you know, used to be 10 minutes and 50% longer is now 15, but it's 50% longer. So you're not used to that. So I think it's typically the challenge would people want to, want to complain about traffic, which
0: these are the I, same friends I, that are saying I've right? done even the same
1: thing now. So, yeah, okay, well then you're, <laughs>
0: yeah. that, you're true local then, I guess at exactly. that point. So, well, Josh, where can uh, folks, you know, learn more about magnify, but just connect with you or learn more about you if they, if they would like. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So magnify.io, it's a great place to, to start. Uh, you know, we're uh, in the process of, of working with a few of um, amazing companies in, in sort of early, uh, early, um, Adoption and they'll be bringing product more to uh, be commercially available here in the coming months. But magnify.io, um, you know, certainly you're welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, I'm excited. I'm a big fan of Bend and a booster for the community and uh, excited about what uh, what's happening down here.
0: Thanks so much, Josh.
1: Thank you. Great to be out here. Appreciate the time, Dan.
0: The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of That Cast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.